Senate Foreign Relations Committee will come to order and uh, welcome everyone and good morning. We are going to have uh, senators participating both live uh, and virtually. And as a result of that, since it's difficult to determine when they showed up virtually, what we're going to do is go on seniority. So uh, if that's agreeable with everyone, that's what uh, we will do. And uh, uh, today, uh, we welcome three witnesses to talk with us. David Stilwell, who's Assistant Secretary of State for East Asian and Pacific Affairs. Philip Raker, Senior Bureau Official for the Office of European and Eurasian Affairs. And Julie Chung, Principal Deputy Assistant Secretary for Western Hemisphere Affairs. Appreciate all of you being here this morning. Uh, today, of course, uh, we're going to be talking about China, and uh, obviously the uh, China uh, presents us with uh, many challenges, uh, uh, with opportunities also, but right now uh, challenges. And uh, there's been a, a lot of legislation that has been introduced uh, as far as China is concerned. But we're, uh, there was a bill that, uh, that we introduced earlier this year that tries to bring together as many as possible. I'm told that just recently, as maybe today or yesterday, that uh, the minority uh, introduced a bill of which Senator Schumer is the lead uh, sponsor of the bill, uh, I'm told. But in any event, um, this is not a partisan issue. This is, uh, this is an American issue. And uh, when, when I put the bill together originally, uh, I did so uh, to bring together thought process from all sides. And uh, we consulted with a, a number of uh, uh, people, both uh, on this side of the aisle and on the other side of the aisle. And there's a lot of input from, from a lot of uh, bipartisan effort in the bill. In addition to that, we went out to the think tanks, both Republican, Democrat, conservative, liberal, and, uh, and got those in the bill. I'm glad to hear that uh, there has been this bill uh, introduced by the minority. I'm hoping we can bring them, bring them all together into one bill that we can all get behind because, as I said, this is an American issue. It is not a partisan issue. In July, Deputy Secretary Begin testified before the committee on the administration's strategy for advancing effective competition with China. Today, we will take a deeper look at U.S. strategy in three important regions, the Indo-Pacific, Europe, and the Western Hemisphere. This hearing has three objectives. First, I look forward to the department's, uh, the department's assessment of China's impact in these regions, what China's interests are, and what it is doing to secure those interests. A lot of the, uh, those activities, of course, are common knowledge, and they're in the uh, popular press. But there's other things going on that I think it's important that uh, we drill down to. Secondly, and even more importantly, we're here today to better understand in concrete and specific terms how the United States is advancing our interests, expanding our alliances and partnerships, and countering China's attempts to undermine prosperity, security, and good governance in these regions. Uh, again, uh, that's an important thing to shed light on for uh, the American people. Uh, certainly, uh, uh, those of us who deal in uh, these kinds of things are well aware of China's activities everywhere. We all know that virtually everywhere you go in the world, uh, China is there uh, attempting to uh, better its position. And uh, I think it's important that we shine a light on this. In the Strategic Act, the, the bill I talked about that I introduced uh, er, uh, earlier, I make clear that we must address China as a global challenge. It is my view that our highest priority in American foreign policy must be the Indo-Pacific region. The future of the region is decisive for the United States, both economically and in terms of security. Prioritizing the Indo-Pacific means several things. 
It means expanding our economic engagement in the region's growing markets, especially in Southeast Asia. It means consistently demonstrating the political will to deepen existing treaty alliances and grow other security partnerships. And it means ensuring the region is, is resourced uh, properly as a proportion of the State Department's budget and personnel. China's primary foreign policy objective is to achieve regional supremacy in the Indo-Pacific and then to use that dominant position to propel itself into becoming a leading world power. Getting our policy right in this region impacts our policy in the other regions we're examining today. On Europe, one of my major priorities is to help advance a constructive agenda with our transatlantic partners on the shared challenges uh, China presents. We're already moving in that direction, and I've met with numerous uh, uh, leaders from European countries and uh, exchanged ideas, and I can tell you that uh, uh, that idea is uh, hitting a welcoming audience. On both sides of the Atlantic, we have strengthened investment screening to protect critical infrastructure and technologies. We are cooperating to uphold the integrity of international institutions. And the United Kingdom, France, Germany, and others are deepening their engagement in the Indo-Pacific. This is a good foundation. We can and must build on it together and thwart the Chinese government's efforts to divide us from one another. I'm very encouraged that the United States has agreed to join the new dialogue on China that was proposed by the European Union, and I look forward to hearing about that and other efforts today. In the Western Hemisphere, the negative effects of uh, Chinese influence are clear. This includes China's predatory finance mechanisms for infrastructure projects all around the world, projects that are often of questionable value and create high debt burdens, severe environmental damage, and social unrest. Aggressive and illegal Chinese fishing practices violate territorial integrity of coastal Latin American countries, raising significant long-term security concerns. And China's blatant efforts to trade on the lives of Canadian citizens of uh, Michael Spavor and uh, Michael Kovrig are appalling. I'm encouraged by President Trump's efforts to reaffirm U.S. leadership in the region and his willingness to collaborate with our neighbors to promote a more prosperous future through transparent and accountable frameworks. Finally, uh, this hearing is an opportunity to conduct oversight of the Department's coordination of U.S. strategy and initiatives across these different regions. Uh, this coordination is important to ensuring that our strategy is articulated coherently and executed effectively. Again, uh, thank you uh, to the witnesses uh, for being here, and then I'm going to turn it over now to Senator Menendez, who I know shares uh, many, many of my concerns in, in this regard, and hopefully we'll be able to work together to create an, an American answer to these. So, Senator Menendez. Thank you, Mr. Chairman, uh, and my thanks for convening today's uh, hearing. As you and I have discussed, we share a common view that we have entered a new and more competitive era with China, a China now displaying global ambitions. And why I think many on this committee have concerns that the administration's strategies and policies to deal with this new China still fall well short of answering the enormity of the challenge. China today, led by the Communist Party and propelled by Xi Jinping's hypernationalism, is unlike any challenge we have faced as a nation before. And as we will have an opportunity to discuss today, China is more active and more assertive around the globe than ever before. Unfortunately, during the last four years, the Trump agenda has served to only empower Chinese aggression, weaken U.S. influence, and fail American workers. This moment demands a strong, 
strategic response that can begin to rebuild American leadership and invest in our ability to outcompete China in the generation ahead. That's why today I have joined with a number of my Democratic colleagues to introduce the America Leads Act. This bill seeks to do three things. Invest in American competitiveness. Invest in American alliances and partners. Invest in our values. And invest, I would add, in our economic statecraft and ensure China pays a price for its predatory actions. America Leads provides a comprehensive and coherent strategy uh, and strategic approach for addressing the new competitive U.S.-China relationship and to define policies and allocate critical resources that combine and mobilize all aspects of U.S. national power, starting with the recognition that American competitiveness starts with investments here at home, in our workers, in education, in science and technology, and in innovation. And driven by the need, after almost four years of destruction under President Trump, to retool the U.S. economy and workforce to compete in the 21st century. The broader diplomatic and security architecture of our strategic approach in America leads is grounded in getting China right by first getting the Indo-Pacific strategy right, centered on our alliances and partnerships, animated by the values that make America exceptional, and furthered by a forward-leading approach to our economic statecraft and a tough, pragmatic, and realistic appraisal of how to best combat China's predatory economic and trade policies. Critically and relevant to today's hearing, the legislation also includes provisions for the development and implementation of robust regional strategies to meet the challenge that China poses in Europe, the Western Hemisphere, Africa, the Middle East, the Arctic, and of course, the Indo-Pacific itself. I know the chairman has China-centered legislation as well. It addresses many similar issues. And as we discussed at the hearing with Mr. Began the other month, I look forward to working with him on areas of convergence between our bills to forge a strong, unified, and bipartisan approach on this issue. Turning more specifically to the hearing today, I am very interested in hearing from Ambassador Reeker and Ms. Chung to get a sense of their perspective on where we stand in their respective regions of responsibility, Europe and Western Hemisphere. There is a lively debate across EU countries and between Europe and the United States on the right approach to China. So as we are here in the US, so as we here in the US fully come to grips with developing the right policy, our friends in Europe should be among our closest partners. I don't know that anyone would argue that the president's uh, destructive approach to the transatlantic relationship has made our efforts to advance a joint agenda on China any easier. Imposing tariffs on our allies is not a good recipe for success. Personally and publicly insulting leaders across Europe is not a recipe for success. An essential building block of our China response must have at its core a strong transatlantic alliance, which today, of course, does not exist as it has in the past. And for too long, the U.S. has sought to pressure Europe without providing real alternatives to China. 5G is perhaps the best example where the United States did not adequately emphasize European alternatives to Huawei while simply pressuring our allies. That sort of approach isn't sustainable for forging a joint strategy on China. 
But even within the strained confines of President Trump's idea of transatlantic relations, we have to endeavor to make progress. I welcome the call by the EU's Joseph Borrell for a U.S.-EU working group on China. That's an important first step. The details will matter to ensure that it's not just another talk shop, and I look forward to hearing more about this initiative from Ambassador Reeker. The power of the American economy and European economy working together provides formidable negotiating leverage vis-a-vis -vis China. In fact, it may be the sole factor that truly moves the needle with Beijing. We should be laser-focused in enhancing that leverage to the fullest extent possible. Here in our own hemisphere, U.S. diplomatic and economic engagement and China's presence need not be viewed through the solitary lens of a zero-sum game. However, when we fail to show up, as under President Trump we have, we should not be surprised that China's influence expands at our expense. And the President's misguided belief that every challenge needs to be solved with a sledgehammer, whether it was placing punitive tariffs on our North American neighbors or cutting foreign assistance uh, off to our Central American partners, has only inflicted damage on the very relationships we need to counter the more corrosive elements of China's engagement in our hemisphere. And frankly, the Trump administration's results speak for themselves. Since 2017, at a rate of one per year, Panama, the Dominican Republic, El Salvador has broken diplomatic relations with Taiwan at the behest of Beijing. In Venezuela, utilizing ZTE surveillance technology in the form of the Carne de la Patria, the Maduro regime has expanded its social control over the Venezuelan people and remains firmly in control of its criminal cabal. When our allies in Canada rightfully arrested Huawei CFO Meng Jiangsu for extradition to the United States, the Trump administration responded with little more than press statements as Beijing placed tariffs on Canadian trade and kidnapped Canadian citizens under fabricated criminal charges. And most recently, as Latin America and the Caribbean has become the epicenter of the global COVID-19 pandemic, the Trump administration has overpromised and underdelivered on coronavirus assistance, while China's government committed a billion dollars in new lending to governments in the region for vaccine access and delivery. And the Development Finance Corporation, which Congress stood up precisely to provide a new and reinvigorated approach to international finance and development assistance in part so that we could better compete with China, has yet to make significant investments in our own hemisphere. When it comes to addressing China's presence in our hemisphere, the Trump administration's rhetoric has outpaced its actions and its attempts at swagger have surpassed the need for substance. We must course correct. That's why last month I was proud to introduce the Advancing Competitiveness, Transparency, and Security in the Americas with Senators Rubio, Carbon, Cardin, Cruz, and Kane. This groundbreaking bipartisan bill will strengthen U.S. diplomatic, economic, and security assistance in the Americas and help our closest partners acquire the tools they need to defend their national interests from China's predatory practices. Given the shortcomings of President Trump's all-bluster and tactics, no strategy, approach to China in Europe, in the Western Hemisphere, and elsewhere, it's more and more clear by the day that we need a real strategy to cope with the competitive challenge of China. So I look forward to a genuine conversation with our witnesses about how we can work together to develop a comprehensive approach to China, to reset our strategy and diplomacy, to reinvest and replenish the resources of our national strength and competitiveness at home, 
to place our partnerships and allies first that reflects our fundamental values as Americans. Thank you, Mr. Chairman. We'll now turn to uh, our first witness. David Stilwell is the Assistant Secretary of State for the Bureau of East Asian and Pacific Affairs. Prior to his appointment as Assistant Secretary, he served in the Air Force for 35 years. He retired in 2015 with the rank of Brigadier General as the Asia Advisor to the Chairman of the Joint Chiefs. He served multiple tours of duty in Japan and Korea was the defense attache at the U.S. Embassy in Beijing. Most recently, he served as the director of the China Strategic Focus Group at U.S. Indo-Pacific Command in Hawaii. Uh, uh, Assistant Secretary Stilwell, we welcome you. The floor is yours. Thank you, uh, Chairman Risch, uh, Ranking Member Menendez, and members of the Foreign Relations Committee. Uh, I appreciate the opportunity to testify before this committee to discuss the threat posed by the Chinese Communist Party, uh, that threat to the United States and the global order, and what we are doing about it. I am here to tell you today with, my, uh, with several department colleagues uh, the fact that the three of us are testifying on CCP malign influence across three different geographic regions is a testament to the global challenge we face and how the department is adjusting to meet this challenge. For years, we in the international community credited Beijing's commitments that facilitating China's entry into the rules-based international order would lead to increasing domestic reform and opening. Beijing's pers persistent flouting of these commitments has shattered those illusions. It is now clear to us and to more and more countries around the world that PRC foreign and security policy seeks to reshape the international environment around the narrow interests and authoritarian values of a single beneficiary, that is the Chinese Communist Party. Beijing's malign conduct is increasingly being noticed. Bullying behavior uh, of uh, foreign companies and governments, uh, manipulation of international organizations, silencing critics abroad, buying, stealing, or forcing uh, tech transfers, spreading disinformation, egregious human rights abuses, stabilizing or destabilizing territorial re revisionism. Beijing's cover-up of the outbreak of uh, COVID-19 especially highlighted the global dangers uh, of the CCP's lack of transparency and use of disinformation. Today, we are engaging with the Chinese Communist Party as it is and not as we wish it would be uh, or, or as it seeks to present itself rhetorically. Our competition with the People's Republic of China need not lead to conflict. In fact, by competing, we are restoring balance and stability in areas where the United States and the world previously allowed Beijing to foment imbalance and instability. At the State Department, our China policy efforts are guided by the 2017 National Security Strategy and grouped around four pillars laid out in that strategy. Protect American people, homeland, and way of life. Promote, Amer uh, promote American prosperity. Preserve peace through strength and advance American influence. We have organized to ensure that all our officers have sufficient policy clarity, training, resources, data, and messaging direction to successfully tackle the China challenge. This has meant breaking down bureaucratic barriers, shifting resources, and developing new coordination mechanisms. We've developed new data-driven diplomacy tools to give our officers the information and analysis they require. We've asked all of our posts to designate officers to focus specifically on China policy portfolio. In response, they have drastically increased their diplomatic reporting on CCP activities and influence. We're also tripling our cadre of four deployed, regionally focused China experts who support our posts and identify regional trends in Chinese Communist Party behavior. In the information space, the battle against CCP malign activities requires messaging that is well-informed, well-crafted, and well-executed around the world. Our public diplomacy teams work with the Bureau of Global Public Affairs and the Global Engagement Center to promote a positive vision of U.S. leadership 
expose PRC malign conduct, and counter propaganda and disinformation. In the economic sphere, PRC state-led lending and investment distorts markets, encourages corruption, and creates an uneven playing field for American companies and local competitors. We are on the forefront of raising global awareness about this. With bipartisan congressional support, we and other agencies are deploying new and innovative mechanisms in key areas, including strategic infrastructure, energy, commercial competition, and investment screening. In the technology arena, we have taken important measures to deny the PRC the ability to acquire sensitive technologies to further its MILSIV strategy. These measures include ensuring PLA-affiliated STEM students and researchers are not able to enter the United States for graduate-level study in fields related to military modernization and informing universities of the risks of partnering with PRC institutions. For over two years, we have called on countries to secure their 5G networks from untrusted vendors and more and more countries and companies are doing and co companies are doing just that. Last month, Secretary Pompeo announced the Clean Networks Initiative, focus uh, on safeguarding citizens' privacy and companies' most sensitive information from manipulation or disruption by foreign adversaries, including via apps and app stores, cloud service providers, and undersea cables. We are also bringing transparency and reciprocity to Beijing's vectors of malign influence, including propaganda outlets, Confucius Institutes. United Front organizations, state-owned enterprises, and more. Since February, we have designated as foreign missions uh, the U.S.-based operations of nine propaganda outlets and the Confucius Institute's U.S. Center. In March, we capped the number of PRC nationals allowed to work at these designated state media outlets. In July, we closed the PRC consulate in Houston due to serious concerns about the inappropriate activities of its diplomats. We now require senior PRC diplomats to seek permission before many meetings large events and visits to academic institutions as Beijing has long done to our diplomats in China. In support of these efforts, we sincerely appreciate congressional leadership in establishing the new Counter China Influence Fund in fiscal year 2020 appropriations bill. Uh, this very important provision provides the department with a flexible mechanism that will bolster our efforts to strengthen our partners' resiliency to Chinese malign influence worldwide. Uh, the initial round of CCIF funding solicitation resulted in over 400 project submissions from around the globe. Uh, with demand far outstripping the appropriated funding. If I can just continue, there's a lot to go over here. Turning to the broader region, the resilience of the strength of our global alliances and partnerships is paramount to addressing strategic competition with China, and in no region is this more true than the Indo-Pacific. Our Indo-Pacific vision is about supporting the sovereignty, autonomy, and pluralism of Indo-Pacific states facing Beijing's attempts to dominate the region. We support a region that is open to trade and investment, free from coercion, and secure. The United States and a diverse cohort of allies and partners now speak clearly in terms of the Indo-Pacific. Similar concepts have been put forward by Japan, India, Australia, Taiwan, and South Korea, as well as by ASEAN in the ASEAN outlook for the Indo-Pacific, showing remarkable alignment across our partners. We have advanced our economic initiatives in lockstep with our allies and partners in areas like high standard infrastructure, energy security, investment screening, and many more. We are strengthening commercial diplomacy to boost alternatives to PRC predatory economics that leaves uh, countries saddled with unsustainable debt and vulnerable to political and economic pressure. To promote good governance, we launched the Indo-Pacific Transparency Initiative two years ago, which has programs focused on particular vectors of PRC influence, including corruption, disinformation, and information control, and coercive financing. We're reinforcing our security commitments. Security assistance helps partners protect their sovereignty and maritime resources. We have double development assistance to Pacific Island partners through the Pacific Pledge, we are developing new arrangements to coordinate with like-minded partners. In September 2019, the first quad ministerial level meeting of the United States, Australia, India, and Japan 
marked a new milestone in Indo-Pacific diplomatic engagement. Respecting Taiwan, our U.S. commitment to implementing the Taiwan Relations Act and the six assurances is firm, as is our commitment to the One China policy, including our insistence that cross-strait issues be resolved peacefully without coercion or intimidation. Recent visit by Secretary Azar demonstrates that the United States will work with Taiwan on vital issues such as global health. Upcoming dialogues will further advance our robust economic ties. We will also uh, continue to vigorously support Taiwan's meaningful participation in international organizations. On the South China Sea, Secretary Pompeo this summer announced a change in U.S. policy on maritime claims, making clear that Beijing's claims to offshore resources across most of the South China Sea are unlawful, as is its campaign of bullying to control them. Last month, the Secretary also announced visa restrictions for employees of PRC state-owned enterprises involved in South China Sea militarization, including the China Communications Construction Company. This was coordinated with Department of Commerce uh, additions to the entity list. In all of our efforts, outreach to other countries is critical and we are seeing results. Dozens of countries have now taken action to restrict untrusted Beijing-linked vendors from their 5G networks. We've also seen stricter investment screening mechanisms in the EU and more than a dozen other countries. Some 54 countries came together to deny the PRC candidate to the top leadership position in the World Intellectual Property Organization. 23 countries joined us in co-signing a joint event on Xinjiang at the UN Third Committee. More and more countries are taking action against Confucius Institutes, United Front organizations, and propaganda outlets. We have released several joint statements on Hong Kong with allies and partners, many of whom have suspended extradition treaties with Hong Kong and imposed export controls. We are encouraging all countries to push for transparency and reciprocity in their relations with the PRC and to expose and counter CCP vectors of influence and interference, including by PRC state media personnel, diplomats, PLA researchers, and state enterprise employees and others. In conclusion, the United States continues to have an important relationship with the PRC, as do most countries in the world. We are not asking countries to choose between the US and China, but to hold Beijing accountable for its malign behavior and in the process to protect our own national sovereignty, security, and long-term economic well-being. We are asking the international community to join us in standing up for universal rights and the rules-based international system and have provided for the world's collective peace, security, and prosperity for generations. We are making great strides toward this goal, and we deeply appreciate this committee's support to our continued efforts. Thank you. Thank you, uh, Secretary Stilwell. Uh, that was uh, certainly a uh, <clears throat> good uh, tour around the issues that we deal with here, and I think there's a lot to unpack here, as uh, your statement uh, indicates. Uh, we'll uh, now turn to Ambassador Philip Reeker, who's led the Bureau of European and Eurasian Affairs since March 2019. Immediately prior, Ambassador Reeker was posted in Germany, advising the commander of U.S. European Command. He served uh, in numerous posts throughout Europe, including U.S. Ambassador to North Macedonia and Consul General uh, in Milan. Ambassador Reeker. Good morning, Chairman Risch, Ranking Member Menendez, members of the committee. To my knowledge, this is the first time that the head of the European Bureau has testified at a hearing on Chinese influence. And I think uh, this speaks uh, itself in the terms of underscoring the scope and scale of the challenge we face from the Chinese Communist Party. Assistant Secretary Stilwell has done an excellent job laying out how the department is implementing the administration's strategy on China. And I'll focus my remarks on how we see the challenge in Europe, what we're doing about it in coordination with our allies, and really why Europe matters so much in an era of renewed strategic competition between major powers. Europe is home to most of America's closest and oldest allies. 
As you know, it's the largest export market for U.S. goods and services, and the United States and Europe are each other's primary source and destination for foreign direct investment. Together, the United States and the 27 members of the European Union account for over 40% of the world's GDP. The U.S. FDI in the EU and the U.K. of $3.6 trillion in 2019 is more than four times the U.S. investment in the Asia-Pacific region. Like Russia, the Chinese Communist Party has realized that the transatlantic relationship is really the beating heart of the West and perhaps the biggest obstacle to the PRC's designs for the future world order. China's global ambitions are simply not possible if the transatlantic alliance remains strong and united in opposing Chinese authoritarian overtures. China does not necessarily seek new allies in Europe. They prefer vassals, not partners. But it does want to drive a wedge between the United States and our allies. The starting point of our engagement with the Europeans must be our shared values and basic conceptions about how governments ought to behave toward their citizens in the world. The US and Europe may sometimes disagree on specific policies or approaches, but we generally agree on the fundamental concepts like the importance of the rule of law, transparent and accountable government, and basic human rights. The Chinese Communist Party does not. We must think of Europe not just in terms of what we can do together elsewhere in the world, but as a theater of strategic competition in its own right. Allies face malign influence and pressure in their own countries that we must work with them to counter. Using platforms like the One Belt, One Road initiative, the Chinese Communist Party endeavors to create dependencies and cultivate client-state relationships. Through the 17 plus one initiative, which involves 12 countries that are both NATO and EU members, primarily in Central and Eastern Europe, China aims to achieve access and ownership over valuable transportation hubs, critical infrastructure, ports, and industries. Over the last three years, we've seen an increased awareness in many European countries, what Secretary Pompeo has referred to as a transatlantic awakening to the China challenge. U.S. diplomats from the secretary on down have been pounding the pavement, or virtually or otherwise, throughout Europe, and uh, the tide has turned. Our substantial and successful diplomatic engagement contrasts sharply with the growing backlash we're seeing caused by China's heavy-handed mask diplomacy during the pandemic throughout Europe. European audiences are getting to see firsthand just how the CCP handles criticism and questions, and they don't like what they see. Our engagement is bearing fruit. Just to touch on a few highlights, Using authorities granted by legislation, members of this committee introduced, as mentioned, the Bipartisan Build Act and the European Energy Security and Diversification Act, we've been able to uh, begin leveraging the new Development Finance Corporation to try to catalyze key investments in strategic projects. Most notable, I'd point to Secretary Pompeo's pledge at the Munich Security Conference earlier this year of $1 billion, a commitment to the Three Cs Initiative. In the Czech Republic, where Secretary Pompeo visited just last month, they have transformed from a target of Chinese influence to a leader in the European awakening. Seven countries have signed bilateral memoranda of understanding with the United States on 5G security. The Secretary signed the most recent one just yesterday with Lithuania, Foreign Minister Linkovicius visiting here in Washington. Fifteen European nations have adapted best practices from our own CFIUS and FIRMA legislation as models to draft their own laws to protect their industries from malign foreign investment. 
And as Foreign Secretary Rob and Secretary Pompeo discussed in their meeting here yesterday, the United Kingdom plans to secure its networks from Huawei. France and Germany both recently unveiled uh, formal Indo-Pacific strategies that reflect the changing consensus on the threat posed by China. And I'm told that France, Germany, and the UK just this morning filed a joint note verbal at the United Nations rejecting China's sweeping claims over the South China Sea. NATO has formally agreed to address the opportunities and challenges stemming from the Chinese Communist Party's growing influence. The EU has referred to the PRC as a systemic rival, and Sweden recently closed the last of the Confucius Institutes present in that country. More and more European nations are coming to the same conclusion we have about the nature of the threat to our values, our security, and our prosperity. They're doing so because they want to, not because we tell them to. Our role has been to share information, exchange experiences, and provide the support and encouragement necessary to empower them to make the right decisions. As we confront the growing China challenge in Europe, we must not forget that Europe is also the central focus of ongoing Russian aggression and malign influence. Although China's GDP is about eight times the size of Russia's, Russia remains the primary military threat to Europe and the strategic priority for most of our allies and partners, particularly those in Central and Eastern Europe. Russia and China are more closely aligned strategically than at any point since the 1950s, and we see growing cooperation across a range of diplomatic, military, economic, and information activities. Russia and China are not a monolithic block, and there are certainly tensions and friction points in that relationship, but their growing strategic convergence is more than a simple marriage of convenience. It's based on a shared assessment of the threat the United States and our allies pose to their ambitions, through our strength, our prosperity, and our values. This dynamic is not going away anytime soon, and we must understand and account for it in our diplomacy and policies in this era of great power competition in Europe. And regardless of whether we are talking about competition against the Chinese Communist Party or the Kremlin or any other rival, perhaps our greatest advantage remains as has been mentioned, our system of alliances, particularly in Europe. As the President and the Secretary have stated on many occasions, our allies need to shoulder their share of the burden, and they are making progress in doing so. The fact remains that the United States has friends. The Kremlin and the CCP do not. This is a fundamental and enduring difference between us and them, between the democratic West and the authoritarian powers trying to divide us. The administration's efforts to support, empower, and consult our European allies in countering the PRC are working. Progress is not always immediate, and engaging with our allies on these key issues sometimes leads to hard conversations and choices. But having these hard conversations now ensures that we have an alliance uh, that, and partnerships that are able to defend the shared democratic values and traditions that define the West and underpin the free world. Mr. Chairman, Ranking Member, Thank you for the opportunity to testify, and I'll look forward to your questions. Thank you, Ambassador Rieker. We'll now hear from our third witness. Uh, Julie Chung is Principal Deputy Assistant Secretary in the Bureau of Western Hemisphere Affairs and brings a wealth of experience from both the Indo-Pacific and, and Latin America. She was previously the Director for Japan in the Bureau of East Asian and Pacific Affairs. She previously held positions as the Deputy Chief of Mission in Cambodia, the Economic Counselor in Thailand, and the uh, Deputy Political Counselor in Colombia. Uh, Principal Deputy Secretary Chung, the floor is yours. Chairman Risch, Ranking Member Mendendez, and members of the committee, 
Thank you for the opportunity to testify about China in the Western Hemisphere today. This issue is one of our most pressing priorities and one that requires close coordination with our neighbors, allies, and our global partners. It also requires strong cooperation between the administration and Congress. So I welcome your engagement and the chance to be with you today. In the Western Hemisphere, we are implementing both the administration's national security strategy and its vision for free and open Indo-Pacific. We have two strategic objectives. One, to reinforce our position as the region's partner of choice, and two, to counter China's malign activities because they threaten the region's prosperity, security, sovereignty, and democracy. Today, Secretary Pompeo is on his way to countries in our hemisphere, Guyana, Suriname, Brazil, and Colombia, to reaffirm these values and partnerships. The United States and the Western Hemisphere enjoy a 1.9 trillion trade in goods and services and a stock foreign uh, direct investment of $350 billion. In comparison, China has a $330 billion trade and $120 billion FDI. Now, over the past decade, we have seen a dramatic increase in China's engagement in the region. China has sought regional commodities, critical minerals, and export markets to fuel its domestic growth. Chinese state-owned enterprises are investing heavily in strategic sectors and pushing Latin American and Caribbean countries to join its One Belt, One Road initiative. We have also seen an increase in questionable Chinese loans for infrastructure projects. All of this is concerning because of the way China does business. China's corrosive capital and predatory lending undermine the rule of law and erode good governance. A region hungry for investment funds finds Chinese loans attractive, but the sticker price on these deals does not reflect their hidden costs. Further, China's corrupt practices threaten the region's hard-won gains in the rule of law, labor rights, and the environment, issues important to the citizens of the region. Faced with this challenge, an important part of our approach is to share with our partners information about the risks of doing business with China. We also aim to demonstrate that the United States and our allies and American businesses provide better alternatives when quality, transparency, and respect for national sovereignty are taken into account. We are catalyzing private sector financing and capacity building for the region's energy and infrastructure needs through the Development Finance Corporation and the America Crece Initiative, working with U.S. companies and the interagency to enhance the region's competitiveness and revitalize its economies. Chinese engagement is particularly egregious in information and te communications technology. We know companies like Huawei and ZTE have significant market share in the region already, and we're working with our partners so that they understand the national security and human rights concerns about Chinese vendors, many of which are state-owned and controlled by the Chinese Communist Party. These concerns speak to the sovereignty and human rights of the citizens in the region. 5G in the region is still in its infancy, so we do have an opportunity to ensure our partners understand the risk of opening their data to Chinese vendors, and they also know the availability of trusted alternatives. We continue to draw attention to China's phishing practices that do not adhere to international norms in our region and around the world. The massive Chinese fishing fleet of over 300 ships near the Galapagos this summer alarmed governments the fishing community, and environmentalists alike. We are working with our partners to increase cooperation and expand the capacity to detect and deter illegal and unregulated fishing. 
Support for democracy and human rights is a critical pillar of our engagement. We continue to support civil society, fight corruption, boost investigative journalism, and strengthen oversight of procurement processes. Open and transparent governance makes it harder for China to exploit our partners through bribery or unfair deals. Working with democratic partners from Asia, including Taiwan, Japan, and the Republic of Korea, is an important tool to raise awareness about China. The hemisphere is home to nine of Taiwan's 15 diplomatic partners. We maintain vigilance as China pressures these countries to flip recognition to Beijing. Maintaining the status quo of Taiwan's diplomatic relations and highlighting our shared democratic values and showcasing Taiwan's regional engagement and partnerships are top priorities. Finally, our public diplomacy, especially our people-to-people -people diplomacy, advances the fourth pillar of our strategy, a hemisphere that embraces democracy and views the U.S. as a valued partner in the region. We are forging relationships that will reduce the space for China to spread its malign influence and reinforce why our shared values are so important. Our exchange programs, public-private partnerships, and grants help showcase the innovation of the United States, the vitality of our entrepreneurship, and the power of the individual to make a difference in their community, strengthening our relationships with civil society, businesses, and especially the youth. This is the time to strengthen academic and professional exchanges more than ever, so we remain well-positioned for generations to come. Thank you for the opportunity to testify and for your support for our efforts, and I look forward to your questions. Thank you, Secretary Chung. Uh, <clears throat> we're not gonna do, a, a, as advertised, a round of five-minute uh, questions, and it will be done on a seniority basis due to the fact that uh, uh, members are attending uh, virtually. Uh, first question I have is, uh, and anyone can take a shot at this, if you can tell me uh, what uh, the new EU U.S. dialogue on China that's coming down the pike. Where are we in the planning stages and, uh, and what uh, is estimated to be the, uh, well, when the first dialogue will occur? Thanks, Mr. Chairman. I uh, saved this for your question and, and kept it out of my, uh, my spoken remarks. <laughs> uh, as you know, the, uh, the High Representative, Vice President of the European Union, uh, Mr. Burrell, proposed this dialogue. Uh, it was shortly after the Secretary had joined the Foreign Affairs Committee of the EU uh, during the summer, and we have spent the last couple of months uh, working out the parameters of this uh, through our mission in Brussels, uh, through the EU mission here in Washington, and in direct contacts. Um, we've developed a, a set of uh, pillars that uh, we plan to focus on recovery, of course, from, uh, from the pandemic, uh, focusing on reciprocity steps, uh, and then resilience. How do we deal with supply chains and, and other things? Disinformation is a major topic uh, that everyone has uh, said we need to discuss, and of course, human rights. And the Europeans have also uh, suggested we include a discussion on uh, international organizations and Chinese efforts to dominate those, and then just share our experiences uh, in dealing with China. So the idea is to have a forum where we can really uh, review all aspects of uh, the Chinese presence uh, in Europe, globally, uh, and how we deal with that. Uh, the, Secretary and uh, High Rep Burrell plan to kick this off. We're looking for a date uh, in the, the near future, uh, trying to do scheduling. I think uh, we're resigned to the fact that this may have to be virtual instead of uh, in-person, just given the, uh, the pandemic requirements. Uh, and then we will go from there to other levels of engagement. The Deputy Secretary 
has also agreed to participate. He's had a number of conversations with his counterpart, Helga Schmidt, at the EU. Uh, the political directors uh, of all of the EU member states will gather and have this on their agenda at the end of the month uh, under the, the German presidency. Um, and that's an opportunity for then the member states to engage as well, as you know, with the EU. We have to look at both member state experiences as well as overall uh, Brussels approach. Um, so there are a number of, of fora there. Like I said, I hope we can kick this off, if not uh, at the end of this month, uh, early next month, and uh, see this as a long-term project that uh, engages in a formal structure uh, several times a year and at working group levels as well. Um, so that we can really exchange uh, ideas, experiences, and strategies going forward. Thank you. <clears throat> I don't think anyone would disagree that uh, this is going to be a long-haul project uh, versus uh, instant gratification. Uh, Senator Menendez. Thank you, Mr. Chairman. Um, Deputy Assistant Secretary Chung, uh, as you know, I and members of this committee introduced bipartisan legislation last month to strengthen U.S. competitiveness in Latin America and the Caribbean and address China's economic security and intelligence engagement. Uh, I believe that our efforts on this bipartisan basis are complementary. AXA requires the Departments of State and Treasury to provide technical assistance to regional partners to help them safeguard their infrastructure from predatory foreign investments, similar to the Committee for Foreign Investment in the United States, CFIUS. Can you tell me what initial steps have been carried out on this front? Thank you for your question, um, Senator. On, on CFIUS and investment screening, this is something that's a very important issue throughout the region and, and throughout the world, of course. And we thank you for the AXA bill. Uh, we will consider that uh, the details of that and discuss with our staff on some um, feedback regarding that bill. But in terms of CFIUS and investment screening, we have extensive engagements in the region. We have been sending technical delegations to countries in the region to explain uh, how public procurement processes and transparent processes work. We have helped governments build that capacity through the America Cresci Initiative. We have 10 MOUs now signed with countries throughout the region, and that's part of the the uh, tool to use in addressing the corruption issues that China is bringing to the region. How do we ensure the countries have the right tools in place, the practices in place, the procurement practices and regulatory framework so that private sector companies will want to come and invest in those countries and ensure they have a level playing field? Thank you. So we are working through the America Cressy Initiative. Thank you. AXA also strengthens the DFC's engagement in Latin America and authorizes additional eligibility for Caribbean countries. Can you briefly outline how the administration prioritizes DFC engagement in the region? Thank you, Senator, for the question. Uh, DFC has been uh, a wonderful tool and resource that we've been able to now utilize more than ever. Uh, and from the former OPICS utilities, now expanding that broad, uh, broader base in Latin America and the Caribbean. So DFC in our region has already invested and has pledged to invest $12 billion in just the Western Hemisphere alone, and in Central America, $3 billion. So it's already invested in Central America, in El Salvador, for instance, on an LNG project, and other projects that are forthcoming. But we are working strategically with DFC to ensure that these are strategic, uh, that they have purpose, and that they bring the right competitiveness and transparency to the region. AXA also requires a designation of a China engagement officer at the Western Hemisphere embassies to report on China's presence in the region. Can you briefly outline for us the reporting officers you have in the region? 
Thank you, uh, Senator. We do have one uh, China uh, officer, China regional officer based in the Western Hemisphere in Lima. We just got approval to get three additional positions in the region, so we're very excited to be placing those three positions um, in Panama, Uruguay, and Barbados. In addition to that, every embassy in the Western Hemisphere has a China working group who does regular reporting uh, through our K1 cable uh, channels, and we do coordinate all the messages throughout the Western Hemisphere in our monthly message. And finally, uh, ATSA requires the executive branch to provide our regional partners with assistance on cybersecurity and cyber defense. Can you briefly outline any initial efforts in that regard? On cyber issues, we have two very new initiatives that we took from the Indo-Pacific that we are now launching in the Western Hemisphere. One is the DCCP, the Digital Cybersecurity Partnership. Now that uh, was only um, planned for the Eastern, for the EAP region, but realizing the importance of cybersecurity and 5G issues in the Western Hemisphere, we launched this for the first time now in our region uh, with an in initial investment of $10 million. But this will provide for cybersecurity training and shared best shared practices and working with our partners to make sure they are aware of the cyber issues and have the right tools to address them. Mm -hmm. Well, I appreciate your responses, and it's good to see that our bill and the administration's initiatives are mutually reinforcing. I look forward to working with the chairman, hopefully, to schedule a markup on AXA so we can have congressional support for some of these initiatives. Secretary Stilwell, as you know, authoritarian nations such as China and Russia are utilizing emerging technologies in new ways to surveil and repress both domestic and foreign populations, as well as manipulate democratic elections. Furthermore, these countries are now spreading their models for digital authoritarianism to other countries who may be attracted to these new modes of social control. What's the administration's strategy to counter the spread of digital authoritarianism and the malign use of digital products and services in the Indo-Pacific? Senator, thank you for that question. Uh, as um, you know, my colleague from the Western Hemisphere noted that the, this strategy is not limited to uh, EAP, but it's been uh, throughout, um, you know, globally, we've been uh, executing this uh, effort to take down things like Hike Vision, DJI, and these names are all well known to us because we have been shining a light on uh, these activities that would otherwise seem uh, benign, but are in fact nefarious. The most recent, I think you'll find, you've seen, is identifying uh, apps, seemingly innocuous, TikTok and others, uh, as for what they are, massive uh, collection platforms for information used by the Chinese Communist Party. I'll point to yesterday, New Zealand uh, discovered that their prime minister had been targeted by this. So the strategy involves uh, not just focusing on China itself, but uh, helping the world defend uh, from these uh, things. I think you maybe remember Kirk, uh, um, Keith Kroc and I um, confirmed together uh, 18 months ago, and he's been leading the way on many initiatives, the clean uh, initiatives. You've heard that series already uh, that also uh, bring all these ideas into one place, and he's uniquely qualified to talk about digital security. Thank well, you. I'm happy to hear from him in the future. I'll just simply say I was more focused on digital authoritarianism, the use of technology to try to control people and nations that seem to be uh, uh, following China's lead and accepting China's technology. So I'd love uh, to hear from that uh, for, for the record uh, uh, as soon as you can. Thank you, Mr. Chairman. Uh, thank you, Senator Menendez. And I, I think you've hit on a, a really important uh, 
issue on the cyber matters regarding control of massive groups of people. Uh, this, is, this is a technology that is uh, uh, right in the wheelhouse of those authoritarian countries that, uh, that want to do that. So I think that's really important that we, that we focus on that. So uh, thanks, for, thanks for that line of questioning. I'm told Senator Johnson is with us virtually. Is that true? Apparently not. Uh, let's. Uh, uh, but the next one on my list is Senator Gardner. Hey, Chairman Risch, thank you very much for this, uh, uh, and thank you uh, to the witnesses for testifying today. Um, as the chairman of the Senate Foreign Relations Committee Subcommittee on East Asia, the Pacific, and International Cybersecurity, we've obviously been working with our colleagues on efforts to shape new policy toward the Indo-Pacific. China is now. An emerging global power that is broadly challenging the United States in nearly every domain, military, economic, technological, and ideological. China now, uh, China now uh, intimidates countries across the globe, leverages its economic largesse to coerce large and small countries alike. That's embarked on an initiative to uh, seek submission and domination. China's made in 2025 policy has leveraged cyber industrial espionage and coercive technology transfer practices with the aim of dominating the global market share of critical future technologies. Its Belt and Road Initiative cultivates economic and political dependence and threatens participant sovereignty. Uh, Beijing's military modernization programs comprise the most rapid military buildup in history, threatening the stability and security of the most prosperous region of the world. It is more important than ever to ensure the United States maintains leadership in the Indo-Pacific region and beyond, reaffirms alliances, bolsters economic links between the world's advanced democracies, and promotes human rights and the rule of law. Uh, the administration and Congress must be united on implementing a long-term strategy that will benefit the American uh, national interest, national security interests, to promote American businesses and create jobs through trade opportunities, and project American values of respect for the human rights and freedom. Uh, for respect for human rights and freedom across the globe. This includes countering China's malign influence from the Indo-Pacific to uh, Europe to the Western Hemisphere. In addition to maintaining a strong military that deters Chinese coercion and expan expansionism, the U.S. must pursue a strategy that secures U.S. technological primacy and economic security in the coming decades. Uh, legislation like my Asia Reassurance Initiative Act ensures that the United States government will speak with one voice to reassure our allies that we will continue to lead militarily, economically, and technologically in the Indo-Pacific region. As we recognize the increasingly global nature of this competition with China, it is more important than ever that we continue to lead the free and democratic countries of the world and shape the global economic and security landscape. Um, at least the first question I would ask, uh, uh, Secretary Stilwell, if you'd like to do this, uh, uh, ARIA incorporates and elaborates on the administration's Indo-Pacific strategy the defining element of which is the enduring United States commitment to uphold international law to maintain an Indo-Pacific that is free of coercion, military, economic, or in violation of basic human rights and freedom. Could you talk about how this administration has implemented ARIA to, uh, to work with the allies to promote that networked vision uh, of security cooperation and counter Chinese coercion? Uh, talk a little bit about how the free, free and open Indo-Pacific strategy can better be, better be adopted by our, our allies throughout the region or other countries throughout the region that may be hesitant to be caught up in a great power competition and how we can make sure that we're upholding a, a free and open region. Hey, sir, Senator, thank you for that, and it's good to see you virtually. 
uh, good to see you. Format. The, um, the, the great part about all this is that the ARIA and, and much of the legislation uh, comports quite well, aligns and meshes well with the Indo-Pacific strategy. Uh, you know, that tells the Chinese that uh, Congress and the administration uh, on both sides of the aisle are, are absolutely aligned on a large majority of these efforts. Um, executing this is uh, much uh, easier if we do it in networks, if we do it, as you say, in groups. And I can point out uh, any number of uh, examples in the uh, region, but outside of the region as well. Uh, you've seen India has come on very uh, strong in this regard. The, in, the concept of the Indo-Pacific has uh, incorporated uh, India into the larger solution. Uh, getting the word out matters. Uh, I've been very encouraged by our, our colleagues in uh, Europe that have understood the threat, have come to not just understand it, but act on it. If you've seen very positive activity out of the, uh, Chechia, uh, you heard uh, Minister Borrell may say some very uh, helpful things. Uh, a number of uh, the folks in Europe have come on strong in this regard, uh, and it's only going to continue. Uh, and that is because we're doing this as a group uh, effort and not as a one as the U.S. by itself. And we're not doing it as just the administration. It's the entire uh, government doing it. So uh, we welcome uh, legislation like ARIA and, uh, and all the uh, cooperation between the administration and the Congress. Thank you. Thank you, Secretary. Uh, Beijing's hostility toward Taipei has been counterproductive, obviously, and dangerous. The international community in Beijing are progressively realizing that ta Taiwan and China are on different trajectories and espouse wholly incompatible systems of governance and values. And so building on the longstanding bipartisan support in the U.S. Congress for Taiwan and the Taiwanese people, the My Taipei Act, which recently passed into law, expands Taiwan's links with the international community and its presence in global organizations. You talked about that in your opening statement, uh, but how important do you think something like a bilateral trade agreement with uh, Taiwan uh, is, uh, and what do you think the economic benefits are, and can we uh, see a progress on that from the administration uh, in the coming weeks and months ahead? Senator, that's a very important point. As you see, the uh, Keith Kroc, again, who I just mentioned, is in Taiwan right now to celebrate the life and legacy of uh, former President Li Tong Hui. And um, the relationship with Taiwan, one, our goal is to com uh, comply with the law. And that, Thailand, that law is the Taiwan Relations Act and, and the Taiwan Travel Act and the Taipei Act. All these things uh, to make sure that we allow Taiwan the space, international space, uh, to deal with its larger neighbor uh, to the West in a way that resolves their differences you know, through dialogue and not through coercion. We mentioned taking, um, uh, picking off uh, partners in the past, not through coercion or definitely not through use of force. And so cooperation between the administration and, and the Hill on things like uh, arms sales and the rest uh, are one, completely in line with all of our agreements uh, and two, ensure that this, uh, this the, the situation, the issue between the mainland and, and Taiwan is resolved peacefully. Thanks. Yeah, and Mr. Chairman, how am I doing on time? Am I still, do I still have time left or uh, have I run out? I'm sorry. Not so good. Uh, <laughs> <laughs> Mr. Chairman. Thank you, uh, Senator Gardner. We appreciate that. Uh, uh, Senator Cardin is somewhere out there in cyberspace, apparently. Am I right? I'm right here, Mr. Chairman. All right. Uh, thank you. Uh, thank you very much. And I, I thank all of our witnesses. This is a critically important hearing. 
Uh, China presents so many challenges uh, to the United States. We have the human rights issues where they violate the rights of their own citizens, the Uyghurs being a prime example. There are many other examples that are great concern to us. They violated uh, their agreement in regards to Hong Kong, one country, two systems. Uh, I've joined with Senator Rubio and others uh, in a bipartisan effort to make it clear there will be consequences to that violation of international um, agreements. Uh, they represent direct security threats and what they're doing in the China Sea. Uh, they're always raising issue as to the security of Taiwan. And the list goes on and on and on. Uh, but I want to use my time uh, to follow up on our own hemisphere as the ranking Democrat on uh, the Western Hemisphere to talk about China's influence in, in our own hemisphere. And I'll follow up on the points that Senator Menendez made during his opening statement, during his, his questioning. The United States should have a strategic advantage over China in our hemisphere. Uh, we have uh, historic ties. We have cultural and geographical ties. We have a history. We are the preferred partner. However, we have seen some really disturbing trends in recent years. The Belt Road Initiative, 19, 19 Latin American and Caribbean nations have entered into economic agreements with China. We look at on the health front, Brazil with COVID-19 vaccines, we would look at the community of Latin American and Caribbean nations, the CELIC. CELIC, they have entered into a five-year uh, cooperative agreement with China. And we know that China wants to use this economic power to undermine our uh, economic system so that they determine the rules of international engagement rather than in market economies such as the United States. So. We have joined in a bipartisan, bipartisan effort, as Senator Menendez said, the United States uh, in advancing competitiveness and transparency and security in the America Act. Uh, Senator Menendez, Senator Rubio, Senator Cruz, Senator Kane, we've all joined together. So my question to Secretary Chung is what can we do? What are we doing now? Recognizing that China has made unprecedented inroads in our own hemisphere to shore up the economic ties, and how can you work with Congress to make it clear that this is an all-U.S. Uh, effort, that there's no division here, and our commitment uh, to have closer ties with the countries of in our own hemisphere? Thank you for your question, Senator. Uh, first of all, in terms of the during the COVID era, we've seen China, again, deliver masks, PPEs, some of it faulty, some of them had to be returned. So going back to the question of can we trust what China delivers? Well, the United States, we provided over $20 billion globally for the COVID effort and $140 million just in WHA, the Western Hemisphere. Uh, and that includes PPEs, lab equipment, detection, uh, and also 3,000 ventilators. Now, beyond the immediate donations, which address the immediate needs, we're looking farther down the road. How do we help in the economic recovery efforts? And that's where, Senator, when you talked about a whole-of-government effort, our America Crecy Initiative, the Growth of the Americas Initiative comes in. We want to help these countries because we expect in 2020 a GDP decline of 9% due to the COVID and ongoing issues. How do we help them recover in a way that's transparent and long-lasting and sustainable? So through the America Crescent Initiative, we bring in whole of government, all the interagency together, and we are forging new relationships through DFC, 
through investment uh, agreements, through further discussions on how do we uh, develop the trade frameworks within these countries so that we can have long-lasting relationships and economic growth beyond the immediate uh, needs of the COVID uh, pandemic. Let me make two other suggestions uh, that might help in this area. One is the U.S. participation in the OAS. Uh, we passed in our committee legislation that would strengthen the parliamentary role within the OAS to make it clear that this is an organization that we can better utilize to improve America's influence in our own hemisphere. Uh, we are members of the OSCE, as I'm sure you are aware. Our participation there has made a much stronger relationship between Europe and the United States on the basic principles uh, of, of our nation. And I think we can do the same within OAS, and I don't think it has been used as effectively as, as we need to. And the second point, and I'll get your response to both if I might, uh, is the Caribbean nations. There are, there are many Caribbean nations, they're relatively small, and it doesn't take a lot of attention to make sure that we have their support on the global community within the United Nations and in our own hemisphere. Uh, we found within OAS, we did not uh, get the type of support we wanted from the Caribbean states. So it doesn't take a lot of attention, and China's giving them that attention, and the United States is not. So I would just urge us to recognize uh, that we can do a lot more with a relatively small amount of funds uh, in some of these small island states. Your response. Thank you, Senator. On the OAS, we've seen it as a multilateral institution that actually works now. Under the leadership of Ambassador Carlos Trujillo, we have engaged, revived the ability of the members to speak up against uh, the democratic, um, the anti-democratic forces in Venezuela, Cuba, and Nicaragua. And another way that we are trying to utilize the OAS is to provide space for Taiwan, our partner in the region. Uh, last year, we had a humanitarian assistance conference for Venezuela uh, that was held at the OAS. And uh, we were able to get Taiwan's head of the TECRO to come deliver a remarks at the hall of the OAS and announced a $500,000 donation to the Venezuelan humanitarian effort. That's unprecedented to have Taiwan be there and uh, that probably made uh, our friends in Beijing very unhappy. But again, we're trying to provide, provide that space for Taiwan um, as well as other democratic actors in the region. Uh, another area where we've provided that space is through the Inter-American Inter um, Development Bank, IDB. This is where China provides 0.004% of the contributions and yet last year, China tried to demand that when it hosted the meeting in Chengdu, that A, that Guaido's representative, President Guaido's representative would not be welcome, and B, Taiwan's representative would not be welcome, and Taiwan is an observer to the IDB. So the region, uh, and, and, and concert with the United States, pushed back on China's attempts to try to uh, create its own rules and regulations in an international body, and it was rejected and the meeting was not held in Chengdu, it was held in Ecuador instead. So these are some examples where we can use a multilateral organization space to work together with our allies to speak up. In terms of the Caribbean, as I said earlier, Secretary Pompeo is in the Caribbean today. He is on the flight right now to Guyana and Suriname, onwards to Brazil and Colombia. But two countries have recently held successful democratic elections. And uh, to reinforce our, our partnerships and our long-lasting relationships with the Caribbean, uh, last year, I joined Deputy Secretary Sullivan at Southcom with Admiral Fowler in inviting all the Caribbean members to a resilience 
uh, conference to talk about how the countries can work together with the United States to combat disaster resiliency in the face of hurricanes. And we continue to engage the Caribbean to the Caribbean Security Initiative and the 2020 U.S.-Caribbean Partnership in many ways across the region. And in addition to that, the Caribbean also is home to four countries that uh, have diplomatic relations with Taiwan. So we continue to reinforce those relationships, and Taiwan is closely monitoring and enhancing their relationships with those countries as well in uh, recognition that Beijing is co constantly trying to flip those countries. Thank, uh, thank you. you, Mr. Chairman. Thank you, Senator Cardin. Um, we'll now uh, move to Senator Romney, who is supposed to be with us virtually also. Senator Romney. I am with you uh, virtually. Thank you. Uh, and I, I want to begin by expressing my appreciation uh, to the uh, members of this panel for the work that you're doing in our behalf. I think it's uh, perhaps the most important work that's going on uh, in our government because I think the issue of our decade uh, and perhaps beyond that is going to be how to deal with the emergence of China as a great power and uh, they would hope to become the greatest and, and only great power. Uh, so I salute your work. Uh, I just want to underscore a few things I think we know. Um, we know that China's GDP will surpass our own by a lot, just given the size of their population, ultimately. Uh, we know that at this stage, their procurement is pretty close to equal ours, military procurement, that is. And so in the future, with a greater economy, they will be able to substantially outinvest us in terms of procurement. Uh, we know that geopolitically, uh, they are rising and we are not. Uh, they're lining up people to support them. Uh, people who in the past have not supported them are now coming to their side. That's in part because they see where the power goes. Uh, friends uh, often go where they believe their interest is going to be uh, best protected. And as China becomes stronger, we may find that they are able to collect something which they've never had before, which is friends. Uh, I think President Trump, by the way, was right to confront China and to push back against their uh, trade practices. I think he made a mistake by not doing so in collaboration with our allies and being able to have much more clout uh, pushing against them. I think Secretary Pompeo was right to have uh, spoken so forcefully to awaken our allies to the threat posed by China and to uh, encourage a collaboration with them. I, I would also note that many of us have very great concerns about the human rights uh, abuses going on in China. The, uh, the outrageous treatment of minorities, the Uyghurs, the people of religious faith, uh, the people of Hong Kong, it's, uh, it's simply extraordinary. We also see their activities in the South China Sea with great alarm. But it's my own view that it's very unlikely that they will change these practices in a very significant way uh, until they feel pain. And the only pain that we're going to be able to exert other than, than words uh, and, and people uh, decrying them uh, would be uh, would be economic pain. And so the question that I would ask uh, with regards to our, our panel and Secretary Stilwell in particular uh, is are our allies uh, and and other nations that are that follow the rule of law, whether you know India, Japan, South Korea, the EU, are, are they poised to combine at some point and to develop a collaborative uh, a trade policy which will exert, uh, such pressure on China that they will be diverted from the course they're on and, and move towards a, uh, uh, a, a comport, comporting with the uh, international order. Uh, are, are, we, are we there? And if we're not there, what do we need to do to get there? 
Senator, thank you for that great question. Uh, it, is, uh, it pretty much encapsulates uh, my entire time uh, in this job uh, and a lot of success that we've seen in this regard in getting others to find their voice. I mentioned the Europeans of late after Wang Yi's uh, not so successful tour uh, have also begun to acknowledge the problem. As we all know, China uses its economic clout as a cudgel to force countries to do things that are not in its own interest. And the way uh, many portray this in this new uh, great power competition is uh, the simple act of talking about it, transparency. As we know, the information environment inside the PRC is clogged. It's one way, uh, you, you know, those who speak out, like Dr. Li Wenliang, uh, who pointed out the problems with corona, are oftentimes squelched. Uh, it, that's because the government fears transparency. They don't want to be seen what's happening in Xinjiang. And so uh, we identify that th this is a values issue where they're using slave labor to produce things that we appreciate here in the West. And I think those of us in the, in the free world are smart enough to uh, take action, uh, economic action, uh, to address this sort of behavior. And so you have linkages between economic interests and values and who we are. Uh, and the United States, Secretary Pompeo, the president, have all been very vocal about this, as you said, uh, is to connect those two. What you have, the result of that then, is you've got, um, Companies leaving China. You know, when you arrest Australian um, reporters or you threaten to arrest them because of something that's happening in Australia, you now have zero Australian reporters in the PRC. You can imagine businesses are going to feel the same thing with this new national security law. Uh, Article 38 says that if you said anything uh, derogatory about the PRC or about the government, that you are subject to arrest. Uh, all these things work against that juggernaut that you described, Senator, uh, of this inevitability of, of Chinese domination of the global economy. Uh, and at the same time, uh, we're seeing great work and cooperation uh, on the economic side. Again, Japan, $2 billion to reshore uh, out of Taiwan. Uh, TSMC, the world's greatest uh, chip manufacturer, looking to reshore here into uh, Arizona, creating American jobs. So I don't think it is in, as inevitable as they would make it sound. Uh, I do think the U.S. has been able to uh, generate uh, cooperation with allies, partners, definitely in the East Asia Pacific region uh, and elsewhere, as everyone recognizes the threat. Thank you. Thank, thank you, Mr. Thank Secretary. You. My, my, I know my time is up. I just want to underscore, I believe, the importance of combining with these other, these other nations. Uh, on a collaborative basis to confront China. Thank you. Thank you. I appreciate it. Uh, for those of us that are that are uh, attending uh, via the uh, internet, I would appreciate if you'd uh, put a clock in front of you for the five minutes. Uh, there, we, there's we, we have heavy attendance today, and everybody wants a shot at this. So, to for respect of, of fellow members, I'd appreciate it if uh, if those of you who aren't here with the clock in front of you, like those of us that are here, have, if you'd have your staff or someone uh, keeping track of that, we would uh, all of us would uh, greatly appreciate that. Senator Shaheen, who is not with us uh, digitally, uh, welcome. Flip Always in person, Mr. Chairman. Yeah, thank you. Um, Thank you to each of our panelists for being here. We really appreciate your insights. And as you all and my colleagues have said so eloquently, China certainly represents a threat to the United States, both economically and militarily. Ambassador Reeker, economic and governance circumstances in the Western Balkans really make that region particularly appealing for China. Can you talk about what we're doing? What is our strategy to address 
um, China in the Western Balkans. Thank you, Senator Shaheen. As you know, it's always a pleasure for me to discuss the Western Balkans. I knew that. <laughs> and we've really seen, I think, some, some great developments there. Uh, as I mentioned in my remarks, as we've discussed across the panel today, uh, China poses a threat in that region as well, where they seek uh, to divide uh, these small countries from, uh, from their Western orientation. Um, but we have, as we do with, with all of Europe, uh, been engaging to make them aware of the threat and the challenge, the, uh, the problems with uh, Chinese debt diplomacy. Um, and uh, we focus on reciprocity and resilience. Uh, and for us in the Western Balkans, as, as you're keenly aware, uh, we focus on helping all of those countries uh, expand their, their Western orientation uh, we've seen great success there in northern Macedonia, becoming, in spite of uh, the, the virus this year, the 30th member of NATO. Uh, prosperity begins with security. We think expanding uh, the, the NATO alliance to include those countries, like Montenegro as well, just a couple years before, has been a, a very positive step. The Three Seas Initiative uh, was developed by countries, a dozen countries in the Central and Eastern European region, uh, to provide alternatives, particularly in a north-south direction, uh, for trade and infrastructure. And we have stepped in uh, to support the three Cs, not as a member, uh, but as an interested partner. Uh, and Secretary Pompeo outlined, as I mentioned, that the uh, Development Finance Corporation is offering up to a billion dollars in matching investment funds uh, for opportunities throughout that region. So we continue to uh, engage with them, and, and you've seen recently the great strides that were made uh, between Serbia and Kosovo uh, in their long-term uh, problem, which has, has hindered the whole region, uh, by focusing on the economic side uh, through the, the great efforts uh, of the White House and Special Presidential Envoy Grinnell, uh, bringing the leaders together not to tackle uh, the most difficult neuralgic issues of, of recognition, but focusing on things they could do to normalize uh, economic relations between Serbia and Kosovo. And that's given us um, some new opportunities as well. Can I, I'm sorry to interrupt, but, um, and perhaps Assistant Secretary Stilwell would like to weigh in on this, but um, Serbia has actually become a key partner for China in, and actually has opened an innovation center with Huawei for digital transformation. So do we have a strategy for addressing um, Serbia and the other countries' interest in partnering with China on Huawei and those investments that China might be making in that area? Go ahead. Senator, uh, yes, we do. Uh, it, I mean, look at the work with the UK and helping them understand the downside of international security risks with that. Look at the, go ahead. Okay, so um, the, the tra strategy is transparency. These decisions are made uh, in a non-transparent way uh, by you know, incentives and, and for, call it bribes uh, with these leaderships of these countries to make decisions that are not necessarily in interest of their, their own people. And so we focused heavily on, on making these uh, sorts of transactions more, uh, more transparent. Mm -hmm. And so what specifically has been our success in Serbia? Have we been able to get the Serbs to um, help us with the transparency piece? I think it's a work in progress, Senator. I think uh, the more we can build our relationship with Serbia and help them understand uh, that we are open to, to their 
uh, interest in being more and more a part of the West, uh, they will come to see the same things other European countries are realizing. Who are the partners they can rely on? What are uh, you know, trusted vendors in terms of developing uh, high-tech infrastructure? Uh, the 5G uh, Prague proposals, uh, for instance, which uh, set out uh, parameters for, for dealing with the high-tech. Um, the uh, European Union has developed its own uh, security toolbox. Serbia keeps an eye on these things, and it's something we need to let them come to that realization that there are options. Well, as we talk about trust and reliance, what kind of um, challenge does it present for our partners in Europe when we do things like remove troops from Germany without consulting with our partners before making that decision? Does that undermine our reliability with our partners? And, and what does that say about our ability to get cooperation when we're combating China? As you know, uh, I spent some time at European Command prior to taking over this job. And we were then already focused on uh, the, the challenges as outlined in the national security strategy uh, of great power competition, including China. I think the real message that we've sent to partners uh, is evident, for instance, in the December 2019 uh, NATO leaders statement out of London, where we declared for the first time that NATO should address opportunities and challenges of, of China uh, stemming from the PRC's growing influence. We do this all together. We've been addressing things like force posture uh, over time. I'll leave that to my Defense Department colleagues to, to get into the details of that. But I think we've, we've got this and we're getting it right. The Eastern uh, partnerships, uh, enhanced forward presence, the things that we did in response to Russian threats, direct existential threats, uh, we need to look at, at the broader range of threats like uh, cyber and hybrid, uh, China being very much uh, a part of that as well. Uh, and, and that's what we're doing collaboratively. I think we've actually strengthened the alliance. Uh, certainly you've seen the, uh, the progress on burden sharing uh, and resources. And I think some of the steps we're taking on uh, uh, the force posture are, are really positive developments that reflect uh, these kinds of more contemporary concerns that we have. Well, I'm out of time, so I won't ask you the follow-up, but um, I'm not sure I got an answer to my question about Germany. Thank you, Mr. Chairman. Thank you, Senator Shaheen. Uh, Senator Barrasso, are you with us? No, I'm told. Uh, Senator Portman. Apparently not. Senator Paul. Senator Young. Mr. Chairman? And who is that? Yeah, this is uh this is Senator Young. Am <laughs> I jumping the gun here? You uh we can hear you loud and clear. Senator, the floor is yours for five minutes. <laughs> All right. Well, um, <clears throat> thank you, Mr. Chairman. And uh, uh, Ms. Chung, building on my colleague Senator Cardin's questions earlier, the administration has repeatedly warned Latin America and Caribbean countries that China's economic engagement uh, with the region may foster corruption and lead to unsustainable debt traps, as we've seen in other areas around the world. 
how have government officials, uh, private sector leaders, and civil society groups in the region responded to those accusations? Thank you for your question, Senator. As you've seen, China not only uses debt diplomacy and poor quality infrastructure and non-transparent practices, but we see their investment hurting the environment, violating local labor laws. We have brought these issues to light with the region, raised it with our government counterparts, but also getting the voices out from local partners, local NGOs, local journalists, um, youth groups. That is where we see the power, when we have uh, the regions speaking out for themselves about some of the concerns that China brings to the region. Uh, one example is in Ecuador, the Coca-Cola Sinclair Dam. As we know that the Chinese funded that under President Correa's term. That dam has 7,000 cracks and it's growing every day. It has killed workers, it has displaced people, it has put people in uh, villages um, out of jobs, it has, because of its corrupt nature, put people in jail. Uh, people have seen in the region and throughout the world the dangers of what uh, Chinese investments can bring. Again, appealing at first low prices, great terms, but the long term, the hidden costs are what people are understanding. So I think countries and governments are more aware of these dangers more than ever and taking a more cautious approach. Again, doing more due diligence. At the end, it is the governments that will decide whether or not to take such deals. But the more that we have civil society and others speak out and see the ramifications of what Chinese investment means beyond the economics, again, to the environment, to labor laws, uh, to society overall, I think that that understanding and that knowledge is growing. Yeah, that seems to be the key, you know, whether it's our bilateral negotiations and in uh, diplomatic relations uh, or work when we work through the IMF and other multilateral institutions, to the extent we can bring transparency to a lot of these decisions made by governments, um, that oftentimes leads to positive results. How How is the administration using DFC, the Development Finance Corporation, and other forms of foreign assistance and incentives to strengthen U.S. partnerships and counter Chinese influence in the region? Thank you for the question, Senator. Uh, DFC is, again, a powerful tool that we have and think more strategically about our engagement in the region and working with our partners. Just two days ago, DFC announced they would work in partnership with Taiwan to provide um, SME funding, financing as from the COVID recovery. And this was just announced uh, as a separate- I'm sorry, Ms. Chung. I'm sorry. I, I, I regret, was, I, I said in the region, it was sort of vague. But again, uh, in Latin America, in the Caribbean uh, countries, uh, uh, yes. are, are these tools, these instruments of diplomatic and, and developmental power being brought to bear in that region? If so, how? Yes. And that is um, the importance of what I'm, uh, my point is that Taiwan and the United States are working together in Latin America. So they announced financing to provide uh, SME loan support for Latin America, Central American region through the CABE, the Central American Bank of Economic Integration. Uh, so that's one example of where we're providing that funding into the region. There's also a $26 million loan that DFC has provided to provide uh, telecom towers in Peru and Ecuador, 500 telecom towers. And this addresses both our strategic interest as well as a 5G telecommunications interest that where China is trying to 
uh, take over and really control that, that uh, sector. And then working with others to make sure that working with the countries in the region to make sure that they have the right tools to be able to assess and do the due diligence uh, through programs like America Crece. So this, this demonstrates your, your, your last point there, how this region, uh, the, the Caribbean and, and Latin America, that whole basin is, is really instrumental in, in countering China. You have nine of, of Taiwan's 15 diplomatic partners located in that Caribbean basin region. And um, um, I'm grateful for your efforts and, and those of your entire team uh, to uh, ensure that Taiwan has the wherewithal to counter Chinese uh, nefarious activities. So thank you very much, Mr. Chairman. Um, I yield back. Thank you, Senator Young uh, and uh, Senator Coons, who's with us live. Yeah, thank you, Chairman Risch, uh, Ranking Member Menendez, uh, for this important hearing, and thank you to our witnesses. Um, China is, as we all recognize, the greatest foreign policy challenge that the United States faces today, and how we engage with China uh, will shape this century, uh, our place in the world, and uh, our role. And there is bipartisan recognition. We are better equipped to compete with China if we work closely uh, with our allies and partners from around the world in particular who share uh, not just our interests but our values. And so I want to commend um, Senator Menendez, Senator Rubio, and others for the uh, crafting and introduction so, of the AXA bill. So um, I've been trying uh, Todd, every day. Uh, every Senator Young. Senator Young, you're still with us. <laughs> I'll keep going. If I Please may. do. Um, I, I just wanted to commend the introduction of a, a bipartisan bill that recognizes the significance, the centrality um, of Latin and South America, which are not only closest to us geographically, but integral to our country's uh, culture, our economy, our role in the world. Um, and China's efforts to undermine or replace our relationships in this region, um, as well as in the Indo-Pacific, are concerning, even alarming. Um, there are positives. We've all talked about the DFC. Um, the good news, I think, is that in every region, we want to see more of this powerful tool uh, that can help advance transparency and uh, American engagement. Uh, one of my real concerns is ways in which the Trump administration has enabled China's growing influence by um, threatening and, in some cases, succeeding in abruptly withdrawing troops or withdrawing us from international organizations. So let me ask a few questions designed to get some clarity around that, if I might. Um, Mr. Stilwell, Assistant Secretary Stilwell, if I might, just to put a point on that, the administration reportedly weighed withdrawing troops from South Korea, uh, a move that garnered bipartisan concern on this committee and on the Hill. Um, can you assure us the administration is no longer considering uh, a withdrawal of troops from South Korea and that if any such changes were made, it wouldn't happen without close consultation uh, with our allies and partners, as well as with Congress. Thank you, Senator. Uh, of course, these these issues are, all require uh, cooperation. So, agreed. We'll, we'll uh, consult, and um, it, but there is no discussion of that uh, uh, in uh, in the State Department. Um, thank you. I, I respect and recognize that uh, the administration is uh, being forward leaning and engagement. Uh, with Taiwan. Uh, we're in a moment of great, uh, I think, regional challenge. Um, and I was wondering whether, as some commentators have suggested, there is some consideration of ending um, strategic ambiguity and clarifying uh, our commitment to Taiwan. And whether if there were to be a, a, a public change in that position, 
there would be consultation before that decision was taken? Senator, that's a, that's a very good question. It's been one that's been very uh, publicly discussed. Um, I gave a speech at the Heritage um, Foundation on clarifying the six assurances. The rationale behind that is to uh, prevent and reverse PRC's squeezing of China's international, of, of Taiwan's nice. international space and get it back into a position that looks something like what we agreed to in 1979 with the Taiwan Relations Act. And that clarification uh, is important. However, this was not an indication of a change in strategy or policy. It was simply uh, reversing what we've seen in globally as, as far as picking off uh, Taiwan partners, as far as keeping Taiwan from attending the World Health uh, Assembly, which the one place that figured out Corona first and, and understood it best were the people that could have helped out had they been allowed to participate, and any number of other uh, multilateral uh, activities that Taiwan is allowed to participate in meaningfully. And so we are working hard to clarify that. Thank you. And thank you, Ms. Chung. If I might, in the time I've got left, you mentioned the DFC um, being on track to deploy $12 billion in financing uh, to Central America and the Caribbean. Um, tell me how state and USAID are coordinating um, OPEC was long a piece of a development strategy. DFC has a broader range of, of tools and resources and reach. Uh, and I think if we're to use the DFC as a way to advance our values in terms of transparency and higher labor standards and higher environmental standards, there also has to be internally coordination with the USAID. How do you see that proceeding? Uh, and do you see any role for the DFC and for our presence in the region to directly combat digital authoritarianism and strengthen civil society, um, as is urged uh, in the bipartisan legislation, AXA, that uh, was referenced earlier by the ranking member. Thank you for the question, Senator. Uh, in terms of USAID and state, we are in lockstep on our China strategy. Um, through the America Crece, which is an interagency effort, but also through the USAID's clear choice uh, framework that looks at governance, that make sure that procurement and civil society are all involved in, in the transparency um, efforts and to bring those issues to light when we hear about uh, opaque deals from China or any other country. So we are very work, working very closely with looking at USCID's programs and state programs to make sure we are closely aligned. Uh, and the programs that we do on anti-corruption and civil society strengthening all go to build that space so that China's malign influence don't come and, and take over that space. So we are very much closely aligned with USAID. One example uh, is in the illegal fishing area, uh, which recently we saw in the Galapagos. USAID has programs with the World Wildlife Fund to, do, to work on natural resource strengthening programs. That also enables local groups to be able to fight back when we see uh, Chinese uh, fishing ships come back into the region. And in terms of DFC and working on digital authoritarianism, uh, there's no better example in the region than in uh, Maduro, uh, regime, the authoritarian regime of Maduro, and working in close concert with China. And Chinese uh, ZTE has long had a relationship with the Maduro regime in providing the Carnet de Patria, which spies on uh, civil society and opposition leaders and, and determines how, who gets what uh, food uh, allocations within that country. And so uh, right now, of course, we are not uh, engaging in DFC in Venezuela, but in a democratic future, when we have a democratic transition in that country, we would love to bring DFC into it and help rebuild. Thank you. Thank you to all the witnesses. Thank you, Mr. Chairman. Thank you, Senator, uh, Senator Cruz. 
Thank you, Mr. Chairman. Welcome to each of you. Uh, Mr. Stilwell, a few months ago, Deputy Secretary Began testified before this committee, and we talked about reviewing the Obama administration's 2015 guidelines for diplomatic relations with Taiwan, which prohibit our Taiwanese partners from displaying their flags and insignia. Uh, as you know, I filed legislation to change those guidelines. But as I've emphasized, the State Department doesn't need that legislation to pass to change the Obama guidelines. The administration could make those changes right now. Uh, Deputy Secretary Began said he wasn't familiar with the issue when he testified before this committee. And as you know, in written follow-up, uh, he stated that changing the guidelines would be in tension with the Taiwan Relations Act. That is a curious statutory interpretation and an odd position for the State Department to take. Uh, as far as I can see, there's nothing in the TRA that requires these guidelines. Uh, rather, it is a policy decision to be made by the administration. What, in your judgment in the TRA, justifies preventing our Taiwanese allies from displaying their sovereign symbols? Senator, thank you for that question. We've been discussing this concept of strategic ambiguity with respect to Taiwan. Uh, and the, you know, I mentioned earlier the speech we gave at Heritage that helps to clarify those things that need clarification, as you suggest right now, with this particular issue. But one of the issues in the TRA that speaks to this is the decision to leave the uh, question of sovereignty uh, undecided, ambiguous. We, we will not take a position on sovereignty. This is part of the, the uh, back and forth between the mainland and Taiwan. What, we, what the Taiwan Relations Act and the administration policy wants is for this to re, be resolved peacefully and through dialogue, not with coercion uh, or use of force. And so the, the question of sovereignty uh, was decided to be left undecided and to be worked out between the two parties. Are you testifying to this committee that the Taiwan Relations Act mandates the 2015 guidelines? The guidelines follow from the Taiwan's relation, Taiwan Relations Act, I believe, interpretation. No, they, they didn't exist prior to 2015, and, and, and the, the, the reason they were enacted was because in 2015, the Taiwanese raised their flag over the Twin Oaks estate in D.C., and the Chinese government got mad, and the Obama State Department decided to kiss up to China and change the rules and appease them. But prior to 2015, there were, there were no guidelines. Prior to 2015, Taiwanese military officials were allowed to wear military insignia. That didn't magically change. The statute didn't magically change, did it? So the broad sweep of the Taiwan Relations Act uh, did not change. It is the same. And was it in violation of that statute when Taiwanese military officials were wearing military insignia? prior to the 2015 guidelines? Senator, I, I, I'll simply say that on the, the question of sovereignty, and, and these are all related, they, leaving that decision uh, between those two, it, it is best in the interpretation is to leave that decision uh, undecided. But let me, let me just note that uh, this administration has gone uh, very far in reversing uh, all of the, those decisions that have been made in the past to clarify, to support. You saw the Secretary of uh, uh, Health and Human Services attended. You have uh, a, a undersecretary in the State Department in Taiwan right now 
So I believe what we are doing is definitely in alignment with your uh, interests as well, is to support Taiwan and to make sure that this uh, that they have the ability to resist uh, coercion by the Chinese. So, so I don't disagree that policy has improved under this administration. Uh, it is not surprising to me that these guidelines were issued uh, under, under the Obama administration and under the leadership of Secretary of State John Kerry. Uh, their policy position was far weaker and entailed far more appeasement to the Chinese communists than the Trump administration's had. These policy guidelines are utterly inappropriate, in my view, for a Trump administration or for a Department of State led by Mike Pompeo. They are not consistent with the stated policy positions of the principles. It is a matter of discretion. Your argument that the statute mandates it is not a good faith argument. Uh, and so I would urge state to revisit this issue because you have the ability to change these, these guidelines right now. It was the Obama administration that made them up, and it did so at the behest of the Chinese communist. And if you can make them up to make the Chinese communist happy, you can repeal them to make the Chinese communist unhappy. And I get that the Chinese government would be unhappy at repealing them. I view that as a feature, not a bug. Um, Ms. Chung. As you know, there's broad concern over China's predatory investments throughout Latin America, uh, alongside separate but related concerns about how China dominates important industries, including the critical mineral supply chain. Uh, I've introduced legislation, the OR Act, that would onshore the supply chain for such minerals, but of course the concern over China's control is global. In Latin America and beyond, China has specifically sought to dominate the global supply of lithium. They currently control half of the global production of lithium and 60% of the battery production capacity. Argentina, Chile, and Bolivia, known as the Lithium Triangle, has 70% of the world's lithium reserves, and China has been pouring resources into the region. What steps are we taking to help these countries protect their natural resources and to ensure that they don't fall victim to Chinese predatory practices. Thank you for the question, Senator. As you say, the lithium triangle in South America, it's, it's a critical area where Chinese are, are very heavily interested in, in maintaining that um, imports from that area. We are talking uh, to these various governments about proper measures, again, due processes, screening measures, CFIUS like investment screening measures, um, before signing deals with China or any other country. I think these are steps that, through technical delegations, we are having active dis discussions with. In addition to that, we have a uh, critical minerals working group with Canada, and both of us are very keenly aware of the sensitivities of supply chains and working more with the industries themselves. So we're building upon these discussions uh, with Canada and all our neighbors in the Western Hemisphere, but this is a critical of interest to us. Thank you. Thank, thank you, uh, Senator Cruz. Senator Murphy. Uh, thank you very much, Mr. Chairman. Thank you to all three for your service. Um, it is uh, hard to overestimate the value of the gift that we have handed China through uh, this administration's mismanagement of America's COVID-19 outbreak. First, it bolsters China's argument that autocratic or semi-autocratic forms of government complete with the set of population control tools that are being pioneered in Beijing, 
uh, are more effective at meeting modern threats than democracy. When a democracy can't get this epidemic under control after a half a year, when an autocracy can get it under control in a matter of months, they believe that that strengthens their argument. And second, our failure has given China this massive head start in the contest for global economic influence. China's GDP contracted by 6% in the first quarter, it expanded by 3% in the second quarter. Ours contracted by 3% in the first quarter, it contracted by 34% in the second quarter. And it's not just that, uh, uh, that, that autocratic governments uh, were able to get this under control. South Korea um, didn't have a 34% contraction in the second quarter, they had a 2% contraction. And so it's not that democracies are unable to get COVID under control, but our failure to do so is the world's most notable and leading democracy has strengthened China's argument that countries should follow their model and has just handcuffed our economy. I mean, our business leaders can't even travel around the world because America is the sick child today while China now steps into that vacuum. We have compounded that error by withdrawing from the WHO. In Latin America, increasingly, reports suggest that those countries are relying on China, not the United States, in order to help them deal with COVID-19. China made a $2 billion commitment. News just earlier this month that State Department detailees will be removed from WHO regional and field offices all over the world. One of China's preeminent defense planners at a conference in 2018 hailed Trump's America First strategy, saying, and I quote, as the U.S. retreats globally, China shows up. And so my question is this for the panel, and I'd love your thoughts. Um, you may contest the premise of my question. Uh, how has the United States' failure to control COVID strengthened China's hand? And how has our withdrawal from the WHO allowed for China to gain prominence on issues of global health? Senator, that's a fantastic question. And uh, I appreciate the chance to lay out some of the thought process that went behind this. I think in, in large part, the, there's a couple of key failures here. One is the failure of China to control what started off as a simple public health problem. And when they did control it in the town of Wuhan, where we had a, a consulate, we have a consulate, uh, they did it by very inhumane and, and uh, heavy-handed tactics. They welded people into their homes. They, they rounded them up uh, if they were sick and, and pretty much isolated them against their will. They separated parents from their special needs children, and those children died from exposure because they were left. So that is a model, that's certainly a model for dealing with this that I don't think any American would tolerate. Uh, secondly, uh, we're the third largest country in the world. Uh, we had 22,000 people coming from China for at least three weeks after the Chinese knew that this was a problem. And, and uh, we were the first to, to close our borders to China and then to others uh, on the 31st of January to deal with this. 
Uh, third, if you look at the numbers originally, the, we, we did not put our numbers out per capita. And being a, such a large country, when you compared our numbers to Belgium and Germany and others, they looked worse, but in fact, per capita were better. Uh, fourth, um, the, uh, we're not an island. Uh, the countries that have done so well, Korea, as you mentioned, Taiwan, uh, New Zealand, are able to cut themselves off from the rest of the world and prevent the disease from coming in. But they also cut themselves off from commerce, tra travel, tourism, and, and all the rest. And those countries now, especially in the Pacific, are having a very hard time economically uh, as the disease eventually will make its way into their countries. And so, as you know, this whole uh, problem began with the Chinese failure to deal with its World Health Organization requirements through the international health regulations to report these things. Uh, secondly, their intrusion into multilateral organizations like the UN and the WHO uh, had the WHO leadership telling the world, it's okay, I can give you documentation as late as mid-February. They're saying, don't overreact to this. There is no human-human transmission when the fact is there was. Uh, and so that, the U.S. contributes between 400 and 500 million dollars per year to WHO. The Chinese contribute around 40 million. I, I think, I, I appreciate your answer and I appreciate the fact that you've got to sort of hold the, the line here um, of the administration, but the failure to acknowledge that we have done grave damage to America's reputation in the world by not being able to control this virus in the way that plenty of other democracies were able to, um, I, I, I think you know, speaks to a real blind spot. Uh, and let's just remember, it was the President of the United States who was the greatest cheerleader for China's response to COVID in January, February, March, and April. There was no one who was standing up more vocally for China's transparent response, their effective response, than this president. That made it hard for a lot of other people to get tough on China when the leader of the free world refused to do so. So I hope that we can, as a committee, um, have a little bit more nuanced discussion about the effects of our failure on COVID uh, and its impact on our reputation and ability to influence events around the world. Thank you, Mr. Chairman. Thank you, Senator Murphy. Senator Perdue, are you with us? Now we will go to Senator Kane. Is Senator Kane with us? Uh, Senator Merkley, you're up. Senator Portman is with you. Oh, there you are, Senator Portman. Uh, thank you very much. Uh, we'll, uh, Senator Portman, I guess you're uh, uh, here on seniority on our side. Uh, yeah. So I guess we'll go to Senator Portman, then we'll go to Senator, then to you, Senator Merkley. Senator Portman, you're up. Thank you, Senator Rich. Can you hear me okay? I can hear you now. Okay. Well, first of all, I really appreciate you having the hearing. I, I have enjoyed uh, listening to our witnesses and, and hearing your and uh, Senator Menendez's opening comments. Uh, I have a question for each of the witnesses just quickly, if we could, at the start. We have so many challenges with China, and uh, as former U.S. Trade Representative, uh, we haven't even gotten into some of the detailed uh, trade challenges that we've had. Uh, but competitiveness, and, and we've talked about the human rights challenges, we've talked about the uh, challenge to our technology and our innovation, which I want to talk about in a moment. But to each of the witnesses, just very, very quickly, how would you describe our relationship with China, and specifically, would you consider China to be an adversary, uh, a global competitor, um, an enemy? Uh, how would you describe China today 
uh, in relation to its relationship to the United States. Mr. Stillwell, why don't you start with you? And Senator, thank you for that question. I can answer that fairly quickly. Our official policy is China as a strategic competitor. I will note that in internal conversations in the PRC, they refer to the United States as the enemy. They've been doing that since 1950. In 2012, uh, in the headline of the People's Daily, uh, when one of their Communist Party members uh, ended up in the Chengdu consulate, the headline was, the uh, comrade Wang Lijun has defected to the enemy, unashamedly noting that. And so if you look at the difference in approaches and attitudes toward each other, I think you can see that the approach from the Trump administration was long overdue, uh, yet we are not using the word enemy. We are simply competing, and in, in simply competing, we're having great effect in normalizing Chinese behavior in the United States, and it's, it's adverse behavior uh, in the United States and elsewhere in the world. And the number of folks who are coming in support verbally and strongly uh, from these two regions and all others is growing considerably as people recognize that the uh, economic threats, uh, you don't have to bow to those. You can stand up for your sovereignty. Thank you. Okay. And we also have a different uh, description other than a strategic competitor. Senator, it's Phil Rieker from the European Bureau. Uh, I would echo yeah. the, the term strategic competitor uh, as we describe it, uh, certainly in, in the national security strategy, but to point out that in, in Europe, we see this as uh, the PRC trying to establish their own strategic foothold there and indeed uh, promote an authoritarian model of governance and, and state-controlled economy uh, and challenge U.S. national security by, by weakening uh, our political and, and economic and, and military ties. Indeed, over the last, say, 12 years, uh, the PRC gained increasing influence uh, over European markets and supply chains something the Europeans, particularly since COVID, uh, have been focusing on in terms of uh, resilience uh, and, and working with us on that. The, the 2008 financial crisis really exposed that, where the PRC, with lots of cash, came in and targeted investment strategies, uh, strategic industries, uh, and critical infrastructure, including ports and, and other things. We've seen a real sea change, particularly in the last uh, three years, this awakening that Secretary Pompeo has talked about due to our own uh, realization of China's uh, long-term strategy, sharing that with our European partners and allies, uh, including at NATO, where we've officially put into uh, NATO's uh, doctrine going forward to uh, look at the, the challenges and opportunities of, uh, of uh, the PRC as a strategic competitor. Uh, and you've seen the Europeans, of course, adopt investment screening mechanisms uh, at the national level, uh, the EU itself uh, adopting, for instance, uh, a cyber sanctions thing. They, they had their first designation of a Chinese uh, entity under their cyber sanction uh, uh, regulation. Thank you. Thanks for that. Let me, let me get to another question. And, and first of all, I appreciate the hard work that, that you're doing in Europe. And I think people have begun to wake up to the challenge. And having been in Europe uh, pre-COVID to talk about some of these challenges, uh, they do need to wake up, and, and they can. Uh, you mentioned the CFIUS type screenings in in, in Europe, uh, finally catching up. You know they, they're looking to us to provide some information there to understand better how they can screen investments. Uh, you know, so many of the challenges we face. We talked about this morning. The answer is let's work with the uh, with others and require China to do certain things and impose on China, uh, you know, some additional level of the playing field, fairness, and so on. And I don't disagree with that. And, and I mentioned trade earlier. That's an example where sometimes they have done things that 
either by subsidizing or by selling below costs that are just wrong uh, and violate the international norms. But it seems to me uh, a lot of our more productive approach to China would be getting our own house in order. Uh, competitiveness would be the most obvious example of that. But there's another one that uh, I've worked on a lot uh, with some colleagues on the committee, including uh, uh, the bipartisan leadership of this committee, and that is how do you safeguard American intellectual property, American innovation, American uh, taxpayer paid research. And we have legislation called the Safeguarding American Innovation Act. It comes out of a year long investigation into this issue and was able to expose that really for two decades, China has been systematically targeting American researchers, uh, usually again, US taxpayer paid research and systematically taking that research back to China. Uh, since we came out with our report and since we had a, a, a shocking hearing on this topic about what has happened, uh, the FBI, Department of Justice, U.S. attorneys have stepped up and there have been several very public arrests of Chinese researchers, uh, particularly with their Thousand Talents program, who have, again, uh, taken U.S. paid research and taken it to China to help fuel the Chinese economy, really, over the last two decades and, and also the Chinese military, because some of this research is actually military research. So that, that legislation we're, we're trying to get uh, passed on the floor now. We have 19 bipartisan co-sponsors, including Chairman Risch. Uh, it is not only the result of a year-long investigation and a hearing, uh, it's also been reported out of the Homeland Security and Government Affairs Committee. And uh, I will tell you, we're now told that uh, the FBI is opening a new China-related investigation every 10 hours with about 2,500 open counterintelligence investigations across the country. That's public information. And uh, so we, we know more in classified settings we can't talk about today, but the point is our American research, our innovation um, has been going out the door to, particularly to, to China, other countries as well, but China is through its talents programs, the, the, the main perpetrator. And my point is we have five things in this legislation we have to do internally to tighten up. I, and this is not about telling China what they have to do. Frankly, it's about telling our universities and our research institutions and our federal agencies like NIH, National Science Foundation, uh, the Department of Energy and others, they have to tighten up. It's tightening up our visa requirements when we know people are coming here to steal technology. We need a way to help the State Department be able to screen those folks. So I wonder if any of you have any comments on Safeguarding America's Innovation Act and the need for us to get our own house in order here to be able to protect taxpayer paid research and to be therefore uh, more competitive in an increasingly uh, difficult climate with China. Senator, I'll answer that very briefly. Uh, you saw the closure of the Houston consulate. This is just the tip of the iceberg of all the things that we've been doing that align very nicely with what you're discussing. Thank you. Yeah. Thank, uh, thank you. Um, Senator Portman, I, we've, uh, we're, we're really short on time here. Uh, if you have some additional- I would just ask them to respond uh, for the record, Mr. Chairman, and thank you for the time. Yeah, that's, that would be the way to do it, is to send the uh, question for the record, and I have no doubt that the witnesses will respond promptly and, uh, and appropriately. So thank you very much. Uh, for the uh, information of the committee, we've got uh, a couple people yet to uh, ask questions, and uh, time's up on the vote. We have two votes. I'm going to try to stall the floor as long as I can until I send somebody up to arrest us. But uh, in the meantime, Senator Merkley, uh, why don't you... Uh, uh, thank you, Mr. Chairman, and I'll ask our team up here to be as brief as you can uh, so that I can, uh, we can get to the other senators who have not been able to uh, ask questions. Uh, Deputy Chung, there's been a lot of discussion of strategic ambiguity in regard to Taiwan. 
an article by the president of the Council of Foreign Relations, Richard Haas, uh, said it's time to have strategic, to put an end to strategic ambiguity that's run its course. Uh, this is in the context of whether we would defend Taiwan if it was attacked. Uh, others have said, no, that'd be a big mistake. You might actually encourage an attack, but we should have a much stronger, clearer, uh, well-coordinated position with the rest of the developed world in terms of the economic sanctions that would occur in, in perhaps including uh, uh, closing our, our countries to Chinese products, which would be devastating to China if they were to attack. And others have said, no, let's just, uh, let's just keep encouraging their participation in international organization. That's, that's enough. Where are you on this spectrum? Thank you, Senator, for the question. Our relationship with Taiwan in the Western Hemisphere has really been unprecedented in the past two years. Don't give me the, the whole history because we're on very short time. Yep. I'm asking where you are on this spectrum of strategic ambiguity and the tools that we have. We're very clear on partnering with Taiwan. We've had nine of their um, uh, countries that recognize it, but seven additional countries in the region that have trade offices. So we want to enhance our relationship and we want to build upon those partnerships with Taiwan. We're doing more trilaterally, more joint financing, and certainly more partnerships uh, like the Global Cooperation Training Framework to build out what we can do with, together with Taiwan. So much more forthright and public about our partnerships in the Western Hemisphere. Okay. Uh, do you share the concern that the growing military capacity of China and the growing kind of adventurism of President Xi make this an important topic for us to keep thinking about? I think generally, globally, um, that's true. I mean, in the Western Hemisphere, of course, we are looking at all action that China is doing to come into the region. Thank, thank you very much. Uh, Mr. Reeker, uh, China is financing a quarter of the coal projects around the world, either financing them or offering to finance them, uh, including countries like Turkey and Bosnia and Herzegovina. Uh, and are we working uh, to provide financing for cleaner energy strategies as we see the impacts of uh, what is happening here in the United States with the hurricane intensity and the fire intensity? Senator, I mentioned earlier the uh, Three Seas Initiative, which includes uh, some of the countries you've, you've mentioned, uh, Bosnia and Herzegovina, for example. Uh, a lot of what the Three Seas Initiative is designed to, to develop our uh, new modern uh, infrastructures, including energy infrastructure. And the, the uh, DFC, uh, as Secretary Pompeo announced, uh, has put forward up to a billion dollars in, in matching. So is this a yes that we're trying to discourage the Chinese sale of, 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 of coal plants around the world? We certainly are trying to give these countries options for not taking Chinese debt diplomacy and, and other engagements so that they know Th uh, thank the implications. You. Assistant Secretary uh, Stillwell, it worries me the administration hasn't renewed the J-1 visas for a number of the foreign journalists employed by the U.S. Agency for Global Media. They often help us shine a light on issues around the world that puts us in a dangerous place with their home countries. This is, includes the challenge of Chinese journalists who might be sent home to China, and we know what happens uh, when people are in disfavor back home. Should we work together to renew those J-1 visas? these folks who are working in partnership with us who may be at risk if, uh, if uh, exported back home. Senator, this is obviously a, a complicated question. I will note that, that the PRC's using of its, quote, media, which is in fact a state organization, uh, and, and claiming that they are journalists, endangers everybody. It endangers all Chinese uh, folks who are trying to do good journalism. And so, uh, you know, the administration has taken steps to rectify that 
by addressing the issue on I-visas uh, to make sure that they- Wait, wait, I'm, what, here's why I'm confused. Why is it complicated? These folks are working for us. They're being employed by us. They're helping us shine a light on their home countries, often in a disfavorable way, puts them at enormous risk if they're returned home. It's always been standard to continue to extend their visas as long as they're still working for us. Why would we, uh, why is it complicated? I mean, why wouldn't we protect them after they have worked in partnership with us? Senator, I'm going to have to get back to you on that one. But um. Okay. Look forward to that because this is, uh, I don't think this has gotten attention and it places people at, at grave risk. And, and finally, uh, Mr. Reeker, uh, the, um, there's a lot of pressure that China is putting on countries using its economic clout not to be critical of their enslavement of a million Uyghurs. Uh, that pressure includes pressure on the Organization of Islamic uh, uh, cooperation. Uh, those, those countries were quite vocal about the impact of the Rohingya in Burma, but, but they have, have been cowed and discouraged uh, to comment on the treatment of uh, the million Muslims enslaved in China. Um, are we working with the OIC to give them kind of the strength to speak up on human rights, including the abuses in China? Senator, thanks for highlighting that. My bureau doesn't work with the, the OIC uh, directly, uh, but we do work with our European partners. Uh, and just yesterday when uh, Foreign Secretary yes. uh, uh, Rob was here from Britain, we highlighted uh, very much in the conversation with Secretary Pompeo uh, the horrors of the repression in Xinjiang. Are the Europeans really joining us in, in this effort? We are seeing a lot of outspoken statements, including from our British partners yesterday, not only Xinjiang, but also the human rights violations in Hong Kong, uh, speaking up for them, uh, and we do see that in, in a number of fora. Uh, it would be good if the Islamic world spoke up for exactly uh, the, the... Did Disney make a mistake by working in close cooperation with the regional government in China that is uh, enslaving the Uyghurs? I'm not familiar with, with Disney in this capacity. This is the filming of the film Mulan. I, I'm not familiar with it. Okay, thank you. Thank you, Mr. Chairman. Thank you, uh, Senator Merkley. That, I'm told there's no one else online. Uh, and Senator, did you, did you want the floor for uh, a second? Very briefly, uh, Mr. Chairman, I have, a, I have a series of other questions uh, which I am going to submit for the record on the Migan River uh, on uh, China's fishing off of Ecuador and what that means in a, in a World Heritage Site and a few others. I would appreciate substantive responses to them. Thank you, Mr. Chairman. Th thank you, uh, Senator Menendez. For the information of all members, the record will remain open until the close of business on Friday. Uh, we ask the witnesses to re uh, please respond as promptly as possible. Your responses will also be made a part of the record. And uh, thank you to the three witnesses. Uh, you've been very patient with us, and uh, we uh, look forward to your responses. So thank you with that, and the committee is adjourned. <laughs> <laughs>